Well, good morning. I want you to take a step back in time with me. For some of us, it's a longer trip than others, but I want you to think back to when you were in high school or junior high. Remember those days when you were having a classroom discussion? You know the ones where the, the teacher would randomly call on students to answer questions. Now, on the days that I was unprepared, it was the most miserable hour of the day. Uh, if, if I didn't know the answers, I would uh, do everything I could, just say, please, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. I would kind of hide behind the person in front of me and, and sink down low in my chair thinking maybe if she doesn't see me, she won't call on me. But on the days when I was prepared, it was a completely different story. I was like, oh, oh pick me, pick me. I know the answer. I want to show everybody just how, how smart I am. You see, it could have been the same teacher in the exact same class. The only difference was me. My whole demeanor depended on whether I was prepared or not. Well, this morning, Paul will take that exact same thought and he will use it to encourage the Thessalonian church. They're worried about some things, some very legitimate things, happening in and around their church family. And this concern has created some confusion that Paul intends to address. And his goal in this passage, quite simply, is to take their worry and concern away. He wants them to find peace that comes from being prepared. He wants to remind them of truths that they've already been taught, but as we all know, sometimes those truths are easy to forget in the midst of a difficult time. And for that reason, I think what Paul says to the Thessalonian church really applies to us today as well. So before we look at the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your Word, we want to do so humbly. We want to have hearts that are open ready and willing to learn. We want to ask you, Lord, to speak into our lives. Embed your truths deep inside of us so that they take root and grow and bear fruit in how we live, how we relate to people, how we feel about all that is happening in our world today. Would you do a work of your redemption in our lives today? We pray this in your name. Amen. So we'll pick up where we left off last in First uh, Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 5. And if you want to follow with me, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I believe it's fair to suggest that the church in Thessalonica is going through a season of worry and fear. Maybe not all that different than what we're experiencing in our world today. But as bad as our situation is, I'm certain that theirs was far worse. You remember early in Paul's letter, Paul uh, commended them for receiving the word in what he calls much tribulation. He encouraged them for being imitators of Jesus and his followers by holding firm to their faith in the midst of fierce opposition. In fact, Paul was so concerned 
about this trial that these believers were facing that he thought that maybe some of these young believers might actually abandon their faith. Last week, we learned about their concern for those who had died. and They had died since Paul last saw them, which in all likelihood was less than a year from having received this letter. So it's very possible that people were dying, that people were actually being put to death because of their faith in Christ. I believe there were Christian martyrs in this young Thessalonian church. It appears, understandably so, that over time their worry had turned into fear. They were afraid that they were experiencing the judgment of God. So after comforting these new believers about those who had died, he now speaks to those who remain alive. And he does so by addressing what is known as the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, that phrase is found all throughout both the Old and New Testament. It's a phrase that describes a day of God's judgment. But not a literal day, as in 24 hours, but a period of time where God pours out his judgment on a sinful and rebellious world. I believe this is what's described in the book of Revelation when it's talking about the great tribulation. It's the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. So much fear has developed in the Thessalonian church that they're beginning to wonder, has that day arrived? This is the question that Paul intends to address. And he does so by reminding them, we've talked about this already. He says, for you yourselves know the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So much fear has developed in this Thessalonian church. They're wondering, has that day come? As we see what Paul says here, it's really important to to pay attention to the pronouns. In these first two verses, he's talking to the Thessalonian church. They've been taught about the day of the Lord. So they know the specific day cannot be determined. But even though they don't know the exact timing of when that day will happen, they can still be prepared. They can still be ready for the coming of God's judgment. Because then in verse 3, he changes pronouns to they. So he's no longer talking to the Thessalonian church. He's talking about the unbelieving world. He says that they will be saying peace and safety. In other words, life is good. In fact, life is so good, they've determined they don't need God. They will be the ones who are caught off guard when destruction comes upon them without warning. Like a woman who goes into labor, they will not escape God's judgment once it begins. As God's wrath is poured out on those who apparently live comfortably, but in unrepentant sin. But then Paul shifts pronouns again in verse 4. I want you to look at that with me. He says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. So, even though they don't know the exact timing of the Lord's, uh, the, the day of the Lord, there will be signs for the Christian that knows, that, that helps them know that it's coming. Which is why Paul says, that day will not overtake you like a thief in the night. I want you to think about it this way. You see, a thief is only successful if he catches you off guard, right? So, so let's just say that somebody tells you, hey, I just want you to know, there's somebody that's going to show up at your house this week in a blue van wearing a red baseball cap, and he's going to try to come in your back door and steal your washing machine. What are the chances of this guy going to be successful? Not much at all, right? Because you know he's coming. You're prepared. Well, Paul's saying the very same thing here. He says, you won't be overtaken like a thief because... You'll be prepared. You know it's coming. And he does this by contrasting darkness and light. You see, walking in darkness is full of surprises. And we're not talking about darkness at night where you have some of the light of the stars and the moon and you can kind of see. We're talking about darkness deep inside of a cave where you cannot see your hand in front of your face or the pit in your path, or the sharp rock near your head. But when you walk in the light, these same obstacles are easily seen. You just walk around the pit in your path. You uh, avoid the, the sharp rock by your head. As long as you're alert, you're going to be fine. That's what Paul is saying here. And notice he changes pronouns yet again in the middle of verse 5 when he says, we. So what Paul says here applies to all who have trusted in Christ, including us. He says, we are not of the night or of darkness. So be alert, be sober, and do not sleep as others do. Now, it's important to understand in this context, when Paul uses the word sleep, he's talking about those who have a moral and spiritual indifference. Okay, that's what he means when he's talking about sleep here. Those who have a moral and spiritual indifference. It's what's described in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, when it talks about those who live according to the lusts of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and listen, and who are by nature children of wrath. In other words, it's people who throw caution to the wind. They have no regard to the impact of their decisions. After all, it's my life, right? I can do what I want. It's that kind of attitude. But for the Christian, that's not what we believe to be true. Paul describes it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. I want you to listen as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, where Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As a Christian, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. We live because we've been rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's why we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are calling on people to be reconciled to the God who has absolutely transformed our lives. But that can only happen if our lives look very different than the world around us. So instead of being intoxicated, being drunk, being intoxicated with with money or pleasure or success or even comfort, we instead, Paul says, display faith and love and hope. I think it's interesting to note that Paul mentioned these exact three things at the very beginning of his letter. If you'll remember, he was encouraging the Thessalonians for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfast hope. But here, he uses the picture of a a soldier who's putting on armor, right? He talks about the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. I believe that what Paul is saying here is that being prepared is a purposeful decision. We have to fight against the influence of the world or we will be overcome by that influence. Faithful obedience is not an accident. Faithful obedience, hear me now, is not an accident. It is an intentional effort to live in a way that demonstrates the deliverance that we have from sin's control. Which does not mean, by the way, that we do not struggle with sin. But what it does mean is that we are unwilling to let sin win. See, as a Christian, we actually admit that we are powerless to break free from our brokenness and sinful patterns. And we believe that only God has the power to rescue us and set us free. And so we trust in him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We surrender to his work of grace through the power of his Holy Spirit. In other words, our goal in life is to live in a way that puts the gospel on display, where every single day we rely on Jesus to do his work of redemption in our lives. Look at how he continues in verse 9. Paul goes on and says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, We may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I just want to tell you, if you're a Christian, this is some of the best news in all of the Bible. Paul says, we have been destined for deliverance 
from the coming day of God's wrath. We may see signs that it is near, but we will not be around when it arrives. Because I believe what Paul is saying here is tied to what he said last week when we looked at the return of Christ. First, he addresses the worry about those who have died. And now here he addresses the fear being felt by those who are alive in Christ. He's saying the dead won't be lost and the alive won't be around because we will both be in the presence of Jesus Christ when he returns. There is no doubt the Thessalonians are in the midst of a very difficult time, but they are not experiencing the wrath of God's judgment. And the reason I'm confident that's true is because Jesus took the wrath of God's judgment upon himself on the cross. That's why Romans 5.8 tells us, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. This week it made me think back to what we just talked about recently over Easter when Jesus prayed that very agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As painful as the crucifixion might have been, I do not believe that was what Jesus had on his mind. Instead, he talks about wanting the cup to pass. And I believe what he's referring to here is the, the cup of God's wrath. Because there is no greater pain than when Jesus took the wrath of God as a payment for our sin upon himself. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin, and don't miss this, became sin. Became sin. My sin. Your sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Make no mistake, the day of the Lord will bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. But those who are in Christ are not destined for that wrath. That's why Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. As Paul, or as Paul says in our passage very clearly, whether asleep or awake, whether dead or alive, we shall live together with him. We can be prepared, but we will not partake in the day of God's wrath. That's why Paul says, encourage one another. I mean, as a believer, that's incredibly encouraging, right? Encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you're doing. What that tells me is that we have a, a shared responsibility to care for one another. Because the fact of the matter is, there will be seasons where it feels like God is very far off. It might even feel like that he's rejected us or that he's punishing us. And we need to remind each other, and hear me clearly on this, God does not punish those he has redeemed. 
Now, he may discipline those he loves, but only to lead them to something better. But God does not punish those he has redeemed. Instead, we've been destined to be delivered from the coming day of God's wrath. So, with that in mind, as we finish up, I want us to consider what it means to live in the peace of being prepared. And in order to do that, I want to go back to those three attributes that Paul spoke of earlier, of of faith and, and love and hope. And in some ways, I think the order is important here because our faith, our, the peace that we desire is grounded in our faith. It's a, a belief that God keeps his promises. And that belief, that faith is reflected in our prayers. That's why Paul can write to the Philippians and say, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, in, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Why? So that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A prayer of faith produces a heart that is filled with peace. Peace because we know that God is, can hear And we know that he is near, especially to the brokenhearted. He may remove us from the difficulty. That happens. Or he may give us the strength to endure it, because that happens too. But he will never, hear me, he will never leave us on our own. So draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. A few weeks ago, I shared with you about the anxiety and panic disorder that has wrecked my life. Each day is a battle to keep my perspective in the right place. But I have never prayed more often than I am praying right now. I've never sought the Lord more diligently than I am right now. And you need to know that he has not taken it away. But he has given me the ability to endure the difficulty one day at a time. Because that's all I can handle is one day at a time. And something tells me that's not a bad way to live. Faith is the foundation of finding peace in our life. It's the reason that we can show love. Because, here's why, if we do not believe that God is near, then we're not going to reach out in love to those around us. We'll be too consumed with trying to control and manage our own life than to care for other people. You see, I can't care for the needs of others if I'm so consumed with my own needs. We must learn to love others out of the overflow of God's love for us. Because we cannot manufacture something for someone else that we are not experiencing ourselves. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 32, and he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And listen, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It goes on and says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, the love we show 
can only come from the love we've known. We give out of the overflow of what we've received. Faith, love, and then finally there's hope. <laughs> hope. Hope is the never-ending belief in something better. It looks beyond where we are with a conviction of where we will one day be. Hope is essential to the peace of being prepared. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 8 when Paul reflects on this in verse 23 and he says, or verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? It goes on in verse 25 and says, But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I look at it this way. Sometimes uh, life feels like a long road trip, and we're like the kids in the back seat asking God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because everything inside of us longs, groans to be home. We want to be home as we eagerly await the day when our faith becomes sight. I don't know about you, but I'm confident I do not want to be eternally in process. I don't want to live under the, curse, the, the, the sin-cursed world and all that comes with it. I want to be made complete. I want to see the eternal weight of glory that God has promised to those who trust in him. Our perseverance is built on the promise of something better. That's our hope. The peace of being prepared comes with being filled with faith that overflows in love because of a sure and certain hope. It's what Paul has encouraged the Thessalonians with, with that, that work of faith, that labor of love, and that steadfast hope. I pray that we might increasingly become that as a church, individually, corporately. And as we work through that together, I want to encourage you to spend some time considering the questions that I've given you uh, as we finish up this morning. The first one is to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And I want you to sincerely have a discussion about what it means to approach the throne of grace with confidence. What does that mean, and how does that affect your prayer life, or how should it? The second question is, how can you pour out love into the lives of those around you this week? And be very practical with this. Let me give you a few examples. Just yesterday, Terry had one of her students show up and put a note on the door with a little rock that they'd painted saying thank you, and a very sweet note that just said that they were appreciative of all that she was doing with online classes and the extra time and effort that it took. I know that meant a lot to her. 
Later that same day, or earlier that same day, Terry and I talked, and we noticed that our neighbor was having a lot of cars and a lot of movement in their home, and we thought maybe something had gone wrong or maybe a death in the family. So Terry called over and asked if everything was okay, and we learned that their mother, who's staying with them, is elderly and on hospice and is not expected to live much longer. So my sweet wife (laughs) made them a meal and took it over to them. And what a blessing that was for them. And then my sweet son, that same day, um, fixed dinner for my wife and I, for Terry and I. And he said, I want you all to have a special date night. Grant and I are going to go ride bikes. We're going to go grab dinner together. But you all just need to have some time, just you, the two of you. So we had a wonderful dinner that he made for us. We went for a walk that evening around the block, and it was a sweet, sweet time. Graham poured out his love to us. Because God has poured out his love to him. Lastly, I want you to consider in what ways do you groan for the Lord's return? And I want you to look at a couple of verses. One of them is the one that we looked at in Romans. But another one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-8. through 8. Read that together. And, and talk about what it means to, to wait eagerly for the day of the Lord's return. As you consider those things, I want you to Go ahead and stand up again and let's close in song as we remember that day that we've been promised. Have a great day.